Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Well, during Advent, we were waiting for Christmas with Isaiah. And now during Christmas tide, we are celebrating Christmas with Isaiah. And so this will now be the sixth Sunday that we've looked into how deeply the poet prophet Isaiah shaped the ancient anticipation for the coming of Messiah. So much of what we think of as Christmas themes are first found in Isaiah. They later show up in Matthew and Luke, but they're first found in Isaiah, including the wise men that we'll be looking at today. By going deep into the Christian calendar, and we try to do that here at Word of Life, by going deep into the Christian calendar, we help plant the story of Jesus deeply within our mind and imagination. And so today is the conclusion of the Christmas feast, the 12th day of Christmas. Tomorrow is Epiphany, when we commemorate the adoration of the Magi, that is the the Epiphany, the revelation given to the Gentiles that Christ is the Lord. And today I want to look at how Isaiah foresaw the coming of the Magi with their gifts in a sermon I'll call the portent of the Magi. A portent is a sign that anticipates a momentous event. In Isaiah's Arise, Shine song, uh, we find a portent of the three kings who come from the east bearing their gifts to pay homage to the Christ child. But the event itself, when it then occurs at the birth of Jesus, The event itself, the coming of the Magi, is a portent of an even more momentous event, and that is the Gentile world coming to faith in Jesus the Messiah. So let's begin to look at Isaiah chapter 60, the Arise, Shine song of the poet prophet. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, now who is you? Well, you is Zion. Zion. Jerusalem as the center of God's work of salvation. That's who is being spoken of and spoken to. Isaiah sees a time when great glory shall shine upon Zion and Zion shall arise and become attractive to the nations. But at this time, around the year 515 B.C., when this poem is penned, Isaiah lies in ruins. Isaiah... uh, uh, Zion has been destroyed and it lies in ruins. But that doesn't stop the prophet from engaging in radical experiments of hope that something will happen. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth. In thick darkness the peoples. But 
Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. His glory, maybe it'll be like a, a star. It's, the world is, is lying in darkness, that is, that is pagan, idolatrous darkness. The most of the world is, is in darkness regarding the nature of the living God. But something's going to happen in Zion, and the glory of the Lord will be seen there. Verse 3, nations, goyim, Gentiles. Don't, don't think so much, you know, modern political nation states. That word means Gentiles. That means non-Jews. Gentile nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So there's the idea that Gentile kings are somehow going to be drawn for some reason to Zion. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. They come to Zion. There's something that's going to happen that's going to draw these Gentile kings to Zion. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. So, so this also is, is talking about how the Jewish exiles are also going to return and come back to Zion. That's a common theme in Isaiah. Then you shall see, you'll see this happening, and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. So Something's going to happen that the wealth of the nation is, is going to be brought to Zion. They're going to come in cargo ships, the abundance of the sea. That's, they're, the, well, they're going, the idea is that, that Zion, who has been forced to pay tribute to Babylon and other Gentile kingdoms and empires, is now going to receive tribute from Gentile kings, nations, and empires. A multitude of camels. Oh, there we go. We got the camels. A multitude of camels shall cover you. So, so it's going to come by sea and, and ships, but it's also going to come by land and camel caravans, this Gentile tribute being paid to Zion. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. See, before that shows up in Matthew, here it is in Isaiah. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of Yahweh. Isaiah's Arise, Shine song is a prophecy that someday Zion will be the light of the world. And that at last, when Zion becomes the light of the world, the Gentiles, so long lost in, in deep darkness, the deep darkness of pagan idolatry, will come to the true light of Yahweh that will shine from Zion. That's the prophecy. And one of the signs of this momentous event is that kings, Gentile kings, will come from the east to pay homage to the God of Israel and to bring gifts of gold and frankincense. Of course, I mean, of course, Christians cannot read this song of Isaiah without saying it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the glory of Zion. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's election. You could almost, you could just say it like this, Jesus is Zion. Jesus is Zion. That, that the whole purposes of God 
for Israel, beginning with Abraham, and then with the patriarchs, and then with the 12 sons of Jacob, and then with their captivity and their bondage in Egypt, and their deliverance by Moses, and all. I go through the whole history. The whole thing culminates in a singularity, a single seed of Abraham, son of David, who is Zion in person, and his name is Jesus. Of course, the idea then is, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but the idea is that through faith and baptism, we are connected to Jesus, we are connected to Zion, and we too become Zion in the earth. That's good stuff. Now, the technical, I'm going to give you a technical term, so just buckle up. The technical theological term for the event described in Isaiah 60 is the eschatological pilgrimage of the nations. I have to use things like that now and then just so you know I'm still studying, I'm still learning. The eschatological pilgrimage of the nations. Eschatological, we mean when things are being fulfilled. When things are, are coming to a fulfillment. The eschatological pilgrimage of the nations means that as God is summing up and fulfilling the promises he's made to Israel, this will be a sign that the nations, the Gentile nations, will make a pilgrimage and come to Zion. The Gentile nations will, Isaiah says, someday, Isaiah doesn't know when. Someday the, he, he foresees, he anticipates, he hopes that the Gentile nations will abandon their idols and come to worship the God of Israel. Now, the first Christians, the very first ones, the first Christians reading Isaiah in those first decades after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus saw, and this is important, saw all of the promises of Israel's glorious future as prophecies about Jesus Christ. And they saw them as fulfilled with the coming of Christ. So they read about Emmanuel. They say, oh, that's happened. That God with us, that, that prophecy about, about a virgin will conceive and give birth and you call his name Emmanuel, that happened. Because Jesus has been born and Jesus has come. And the promises about the governor will be on his shoulder, that's right, because Jesus is Lord. And the promise that he will bring a peaceable kingdom, and in that kingdom they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that's come to pass, and we live that way now. And the church did. They said it's come to pass. They weren't waiting. They didn't say, okay, well, Jesus came, but we won't count that one. He has to come back twice before we'll believe it. They didn't do that. For the first 300 years, the church said all of the promises made concerning Israel by Isaiah and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they learned that from Jesus himself, who told that to the Emmaus Road disciples on the first Easter. So Emmanuel, born of a virgin, prince of peace, peaceable kingdom, lions laying down with lambs, all of that they saw as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they also saw that the Gentile nations would come to worship the God of Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. The early Christian theologians did not read Isaiah to find out what will happen in the future, but to discover what had already been accomplished in Christ. I want you to get that. The earliest Christian theologians didn't read Isaiah to find out what's going to happen in the future. 
They didn't say, oh, we see that someday they're going to turn swords into plowshares. Some days the lion's going to lay down with lambs. Someday a peaceable kingdom will come. They didn't do that. They read Isaiah not to find out what will happen in the future, but to find out what had been accomplished by Christ. And then they sought to live according to that here and now. And you say, well, not everybody did. Well, no, not everybody was baptized and believed in Jesus, but everybody that was baptized and believed in Jesus said yes and began to live that way. Now let's go to, let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. And then verse 11. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So all of this happens in the time of King Herod, which means it happens before 4 B.C. Because Herod, Herod the Great, died in 4 B.C. And because of the way the text reads and what we're told about all the children aged two and So we think that Jesus was born at least two years before the death, a minimum of two years before the death of Herod. So 6 or 7 B.C. So yeah, in fact, the calendar's off. And we've known that for centuries now, but you know, there's no go back and changing it. I mean, I can't just you know, get up here and tell you, oops, sorry, it's 2027. <laughs> but the calendar's a little bit off. Jesus was born around the year 6 or 7 B.C. He was born at the end of a very long reign of, uh, I, I forgot how long he ran. I think it was nigh on 40 years. He, Jesus was born at the end of the long reign of King Herod and during the, reign, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Um, Caesar Augustus, by the way, was the first Roman emperor to be given the title Son of God. And it was printed it was imprinted on all the money, minted on all the money, and it was circulating throughout the Roman Empire that we now know who the Son of God is, and his name is Caesar Augustus. And that's the time when Jesus is born. We're told that at that time, in the time of King Herod, probably around the year 6 or 7 B.C., so Jesus Christ was born 6 or 7 years before Christ. <laughs> I know it's confusing. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem because they're, they're coming to Zion, because they're coming to the capital, because they're looking for the king. They don't understand that the king is going to be born just five miles south, where, where the greatest of the Hebrew kings, the Jewish kings, the kings of Israel are born. David, David was born in Bethlehem, just five miles from Jerusalem. But they come first to the capital city because they're looking for the king, these wise men, or they're, they're magi is what they are. They're magi. We say wise men, it's close enough. Magi is the actual word. Magi were Persian priests who were experts in astronomy, 
and astrology, medicine, philosophy, religion, and magic. Uh, in fact, magi and the word magic are related. They come from the same source. So they're Persian priests. They're from Persia. They're of the priestly class. They're experts in a wide range of subjects, including dream interpretation, astrology, astronomy, philosophy, science, magic, religion, medicine. And the tradition that it was three, we three kings of Orindar, the tradition of three magi is derived from the number of their kinds of gifts. We're not told how many magi there were. But there were three kinds of gifts. Gold. And frankincense, which Isaiah mentions, and myrrh, which is something new that's added. Isaiah doesn't mention myrrh, but it's a burial spice. Hmm, that's interesting. There's a tradition in the Syrian Orthodox Church that the number of the Magi was 12, which would in some ways be a more auspicious number than three, as there were 12 tribes of Israel that first received the revelation of God. Now there are 12 magi representing the Gentile nations that come to Zion with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But you know what? We're going to stick with three because there's no way I'm going to bring a dozen camels in here on Christmas Eve. It's enough. Three's enough. Amen, Stan? All right. Amen, Dan? <laughs> Wherever Dan is. The tradition that they were kings, you know, I told the Magi are, are priests of the priestly caste. The, the tradition that they were kings comes from, we already saw in Isaiah 60, and it's also mentioned in Isaiah 72. And it really took hold uh, from a sermon that the church father Tertullian preached in the second century about these being kings. Well, they probably weren't literally kings, but they did come from the wealthy, elite, priestly caste of Persia. Of course, Persia. What is the modern name for Persia? Iran. Iran. In other words, the first Gentile worshipers of Christ were Persian. Let me say it a different way. The first Gentile worshipers of Christ were Iranian. Did you know that over the last few decades there has been a tremendous move of the Spirit of God in Iran and a Christian revival and those that the, the best estimates we have because there, there's some secrecy involved but there's something in the neighborhood of a half a million believers in Jesus in Iran and so we pray that our brothers and sisters in Iran will know peace and not war amen and amen it says that uh, well, the, the Persian Magi said that we observed his star at its rising. Now, they're, they're astronomers. That is, they are expert in studying the celestial movement of the stars and the planets. They keep star logs. They notice it. And then, the, and then they interpret events according to them. Now, this is something that is expressly forbidden in the Hebrew Torah. So Jews didn't practice, since they weren't going to practice astrology, they didn't mess with astronomy much. They didn't pay a lot of attention to that because it was forbidden to them. Uh, but these are Gentiles and these are Magi from Persia and they are looking into the heavens 
and trying to discern meaning from the stars, something that is forbidden to the Jewish people, but they read something in the stars. Um, in the years 6 and 7, or we should say it this way, in the years 7 and 6 B.C., because we're counting down, in the years 7 and 6 B.C., three times there was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, which means nothing to you or me. But we know from the records, both Babylonian and Persian, that probably the most predominant interpretation of a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces would be that there had been the birth of a very important king among the Jews. Fascinating stuff. So these Persian magi then decide, and they're so convinced of this sign, that they're going to travel a thousand miles to pay homage to this very important king of the Jews who has been born. Now, 20 years ago, I was fascinated by how the Magi read the birth of Christ in the stars, and I've read a lot of books on that subject. That's how I could tell you that. I remembered that from all those books I read. Um, today, I'm not that interested in that. I mean, it's okay, it's all right, but today I've come to understand that in a story, the why is almost always more important than the how. The why is more important than the how. For Matthew, the important thing is not how the Magi knew that Christ was born, but what their eschatological pilgrimage portends. Matthew doesn't bother to tell us how they figured this out. I mean, he mentions a star, but you know, he doesn't go into detail. There's a star, and somehow, somehow Persian priests a thousand miles away end up actually finding Jesus in Bethlehem from something they read in the stars. Matthew doesn't tell us how they did that, really. He just mentions it. But what's important for Matthew is what it signifies, what it portends. And what it portends is that soon... The Gentile nations are going to begin to worship the God of Israel. Let's look again one more time. Just one more time. Let's look again one more time at the passage in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Yeah, this is the prophet speaking to and of Zion. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It might be like a star rising over Judea. For darkness, pagan darkness, shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord, Yahweh, will arise upon you, Zion, that we see ultimately embodied in Christ the Messiah. And his glory will appear over you. Gentile nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Matthew's telling us that the Gentile world is soon to come to God through the light of Christ. And, and this is something that... We can just take for granted that the entire Western world, when we talk about God, are talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that wasn't true 2,000 years ago at all. The God of Israel was just thought of as this, this, this one kind of minor deity connected to this one peculiar people called the Jewish people. But it came to pass. And it's amazing that Matthew recognized what this sign meant and what it portended. Matthew writes his gospel 
about 50 years after the life of Christ. And when Matthew writes his gospel, there were probably less than 10,000 Christians in all of the world. Let's say that maybe half of them at least were Jewish. So when Matthew writes his gospel, there's no more than probably 5,000 Gentile worshipers of Christ in the whole world, and yet he knows that that's going to change. He knows what this portends. So in telling the story of the Magi, Matthew is foretelling a momentous event that the Gentiles are going to come to the God of Israel through faith in Christ by the millions. And so they did. This was always God's plan. I mean, in time, in time, all of the gods of Europe are put out of business. I mean, it was, it was the Scandinavian gods that were kind of the last, but eventually, it took about a thousand years, but eventually, you know, Thor just had to put up a little sign closed, out of business, because Christ had prevailed and conquered. Hallelujah. And this was always God's plan. Israel was chosen, elected. Why? So that through their line, Messiah might come as the king of the Jews who would become then the king of the nations, the king of the world, the king of kings. The Apostle Paul says that this is, in fact, the mystery of Messiah. That it was all there, but it was hard to see. Not everybody saw it, but it was there in the prophets that someday this anointed, this is what Christ means, the anointed king of God will come. But when the anointed king comes, he's not just coming to raise up Israel. In fact, he's coming to bring the light of God's salvation to the whole world, even to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul calls this the mystery of Messiah. I want to read to you what he writes about it in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, in former generations, and, and this, Paul is writing this, again, about, I don't know, this is be about uh, only about 20, 30 years after the life of Christ, before the Gospels were written. He writes this. In former generations, the mystery of Messiah was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, through the gospel, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promises of Israel in Jesus the Messiah. So what Christ is doing is gathering all of the nations into one body maintaining their distinction and their ethnicity, but coming into a common faith, confessing that Jesus is Lord. One faith, one confession, one baptism. In becoming the king of the Jews, Jesus became ultimately the king of the nations because this was always the promise that Israel's Messiah would become king of the Gentiles. So what does Christ mean? Christ is the title given to the one that God has anointed to be king. And what, by the way, what is the domain of this King Christ? Well, it's the whole world. Hallelujah. And one generation after the life and death of Jesus Christ, Matthew understood the portent of the Magi. That the Gentiles would come out of the darkness into the light of Christ 
And in many, many surprising ways it came to pass and the pagan gods of Europe were all supplanted by the God of Israel introduced to the world through Jesus Christ. Most of that happened quite a long time ago and there's a lot of water under the bridge. Today, 2,000 years later, we actually live in, at least in the Western world, in Western Europe and North America, we live in an increasingly post-Christian epoch. Today, many in the Western world have turned away from the light of Christ. Today, the old gods of Mars, Mammon, Eros are on the rise in new guises and under new names, but it's still the old pagan gods of the worship of power, money, and sex. Nevertheless, we do not despair because God is always able to call modern magi to Christ through signs that they will understand. And so let us pray for that. Oh God, as you called the ancient magi to Christ through signs that they read in the stars, so-called people today by creative and wondrous signs given by your grace, yes, call modern magi out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And Lord, we also want to pray for peace in the land where live the descendants of the magi. We pray for the ancient land of Persia, now called Iran, we pray that peace would come there, not war. We pray that the gospel would continue to come there, not death and destruction. We pray, God, that those that name the name of Christ would live in the peaceable kingdom that Christ has inaugurated in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me? And on this 12th day of Christmas, this day before Epiphany, let us together confess our Christian faith and then we will come to the table of the Lord to receive the gifts of Christ as He gives us His life through bread and wine. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.